All right, let's give the worship uh, uh, another round of applause. All right, well, good morning, church. Uh, listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if you're new here, we are so glad you are visiting us this morning. We want you to know that we started Tri Village for people just like you. And so regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, there's a place for you here at Tri Village Church. One of the things that we like to say here to people who are visiting is that you are welcomed, you are wanted, and you are needed. And that regardless of where you come from or what you've done, uh, we want you to know that there's a place for you here and that you are welcomed, wanted, and needed. Um, now, this morning, as you can tell, I'm doing things just a little bit different. Uh, I have my notes up here with me, and this is only the second time in the three years we've existed, almost three years we've existed, that I've had my notes. And the reason why is because seminary has finally caught up with me, all right? So two years in the seminary, I was able to get through it just almost uh, without even being touched by it. But, but, but uh, last night, I was writing papers until 12 a.m., all right? And so by the time I finished editing my sermon, and usually I practice it, that's usually how I memorize it, uh, it was like 3, 4 in the morning, and I said no. So, uh, so if, 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 you, if you think less of me, then that's, that's on you, okay? I, I, I needed to sleep, all right? So I, I have my notes here in front of me, and uh, you know, it's, it's actually way more peaceful, though. If trying to memorize something is tough, and, and you're having conversations with people before you preach, and you're like, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, nice to see you, and you're thinking about you, but it's great, because now I just got to look down, and it's all right here in front of me, so... Um, so listen, this morning we are continuing our seven-week series uh, entitled By Faith, okay? And, and the reason why we have entitled this series By Faith is because in this series we are going section by section and verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, the reason why we've entitled this series By Faith is because in Hebrews 11 you see the, the, the phrase by faith again and again and again. And many people refer to Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter. The reason why Hebrews 11 is referred to as the faith chapter is because, not only because by faith is repeated again and again and again, but because the author of Hebrews, he begins Hebrews chapter 11 with a very thorough and comprehensive definition of faith. Then after giving us a definition for the rest of the chapter, chapter, he then proceeds to give us examples from the Old Testament of people who walked by faith. And so this morning, we are in the sixth installment of this series, and we're not going to be looking just at one person this morning. We are going to be looking at two people this morning. Uh, We are going to be looking at the lives of Joshua and of Rahab, Joshua and Rahab. So here's how we're going to do it. This morning, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 11. Then after we read verses 1 and 2, we're going to then jump down to verse 30 and 31. Okay, so verses 1 and 2 gives us the definition of faith, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And then we're going to look at the verses that we're going to camp out in this morning, which is verses 30 and 31. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. And it'll be here on the passage on the screen behind me. Here's what it says. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for uh, and what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Then it says in verse 30 and 31, it says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Everyone say seven days. Not six days. Seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Okay? That's our passage for this morning, and let me go ahead and pray for us before we jump in. Father, we we come before you this morning, and and we thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you, Lord, that you are perfect, but we are aware that we are imperfect, and that includes me. And so, Father, I ask you in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit that from the moment I say amen, it would not be me speaking, but it would be you speaking through me. Lord, I pray that I would declare with my lips, that I would display with my heart that you are the one that we worship, that you are the one that we praise, that you are the one that we rely on. Jesus, be central here today. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. 
So like I already mentioned, this morning we are continuing our By Faith series, and this morning we're going to be looking at not one character, but two characters. Um, and the reason why we are looking at two characters is because these two individuals are connected by the same historical event. Joshua and Rahab are connected by the same historical event. But here's what's fascinating about Joshua and uh, Rahab. Not only are they connected by the same event, but they are actually connected by the same type of faith. The same type of faith. And here's what we're going to learn here this morning. And, And if you forget everything else I say this morning, this is the thing I need you to remember, okay? This is why their faith was so unique and so noteworthy. Because they were both individuals who didn't just believe in God, but they believed God. Okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that again. I'm gonna say this more off, very often in this message. I need you to follow with me here. The reason why their faith is noteworthy is because they were individuals who didn't just believe in God, but they actually believed God. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between believing in God and actually believing God. And I'm going to show you that difference as we go on this morning. So here's what we're going to see. In this story, we see that their faith in God impacts them in three specific areas. It impacts their identity, it impacts their victory, and it impacts their destiny. Now, I know this seems like a Joel Osteen sermon outline, okay? It's a very, very uh, prosperity, victory, and destiny and all that. Uh, But I promise that I'm not going to ask you for money, okay? This is just, it, it, it rhymed. And it flowed, and so just I promise you that that I'm not, you know, falling off the deep end, okay? So we see that their faith in God impacts their identity, their victory, and their destiny. Now, the first area that we see that their faith in God impacts is it impacts their identity, okay? So when it comes to the area of identity, they didn't just believe in God, but they actually believed God. Okay, so let me begin with the story of Joshua. Let me show you how Joshua did just that. In Exodus chapter 17 is the first time that we hear about Joshua. In Exodus 17, Joshua is the commander of the Lord's army, and he is the one who's leading the Israelites in the battle against the Amalekites, okay? In that story, some of you may not know what passage I'm talking about, but this might jog your memory. It's the story where Moses is on the hilltop, and he has to keep his arms raised, And anytime his arms come down, the Israelites start losing. And so he needs two guys to come alongside him and hold his arms up so that the Israelites can win. We are so focused on Moses in that story that we can actually lose sight of the fact that the person who's actually fighting is Joshua. It's the first time we hear about him in Exodus 17. Then a few chapters later in Exodus 24, Joshua comes up again. But in this passage, he's not the enforcer of Moses. He's the assistant of Moses. Okay. In Exodus 24, when we, when we think of the story of Moses, we only think about Moses going up to the mountain. But what we're told in Exodus 24 is that Moses wasn't alone. There was someone who came with him up to the mountain and saw everything Moses saw and heard everything Moses heard, and that person was Joshua. Then a few chapters later, so that's Exodus 24, in Exodus 32, they're literally on the mountain for that many chapters. God's talking and talking and talking and talking. And then in Exodus chapter 32, it's Joshua who says to Moses, do you hear a noise coming from the camp? What's that noise coming from the camp? And Moses looks at him and he looks at Moses like, are they, are they, are they weeping? Are they cheering? Are they singing? Are they parting? What are they doing? So, so they come down with the Ten Commandments and, and what's going on? They get there and the Israelites, Moses took too long to come down. And so what they're doing is they're worshiping a golden calf. They're worshiping another God. But it's Joshua who tells Moses, let's go down. I I hear something in the camp, right? Then in Numbers chapter 24, he shows up again, and he's one of the 12 spies that God sends out to the promised land. So so, so Moses and the Israelites, they leave the promised land, and and, and initially they go directly to where they needed to go, which was, sorry, they leave Egypt and they go directly to the promised land. When they get there, uh, God tells, tells Moses to select 12 spies to go out and do reconnaissance, if you will, of the land. Joshua is one of those spies. And out of the 12 spies, only two of them come back and say, God is going to deliver us. Only two of them come back and say, God can win this battle. One of them is Caleb, and the other one is Joshua. Okay? 
Then in Deuteronomy 34, which is when he comes up again, he is no longer the enforcer. He is no longer the assistant. He, the assistant. He's no longer the, the spy. He, in Deuteronomy 34, he is now the successor, the replacement of Moses. Okay? So, so now that we have a summary of, of who Joshua is, I, the first thing I want you to see in Joshua's life is I want you to see how his faith in God impacted his identity. His identity. See, Joshua's primary identity comes not from what people say, but from what God said. Okay, let me say that again. What we see in this story again and again and again in the story of Joshua is that his primary identity didn't come from what people said. It came from what God said. Now think about it. If there's anyone in the Bible that could have been crushed under the expectations of their role, it was Joshua. I brought this up last week, or maybe I didn't mention it, but here's what I came to the conclusion of last week. I believe, wholeheartedly believe, that the most important character in the Old Testament outside of God is Moses. Like, that's how crucial he is, not just to the Old Testament, but even in foreshadowing the New Testament. Imagine being the guy that has to replace the guy. Okay? If there's anyone who could have succumbed to the pressure if there's anyone who could have found his identity horizontally in people and not vertically in God, it was Joshua. And just to show you how bad it was, at the end of Deuteronomy, literally the last verses of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, is where we find the eulogy, if you will, of Moses. Moses dies, and at the end of Deuteronomy, he's already gone, verse, chapter 34, and here is what the people say about Moses. Look what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Those are big shoes to fill, people. Okay? Joshua is selected to replace that guy. But what I need you to see is that in Deuteronomy 34, what we have is not God's perspective on Moses. We have the, this is the people's perspective. This is the, the view from the, the people have of Moses. But then literally in the very next verses, because this is literally the last verses of, of Deuteronomy. In the very next verse, the beginning of Joshua, we get to see God's perspective on Moses. Look what God says about Moses. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said, said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's God's summary of Moses' life. <laughs> That's all God has to say about Moses. So the people are like, he did, he did this, and, and he walked with God, and he saw God face to face, and he did all these, and all God, God literally in a tweet summarizes the life of Moses. It, Moses is literally alive from Exodus to Deuteronomy. It's a long part of the Bible, and God in, in, in a tweet says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Actually, this might show how morbid I am, that this is actually my favorite verse in all the Bible. It really is. And, and it is in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, because I'm a type three on the Enneagram, uh, uh, my, my favorite verse is Colossians 3.23, where it says, everything you do, do it with all your heart as to the Lord. That's what threes do. But, but, but in the Old Testament, my favorite verse in the entire Old Testament is this verse right here. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, now then, you know, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. You know why this is my favorite verse? Because anytime I think I'm important, anytime I think you guys need me, anytime I think I'm special or essential to God's plan, I read this verse. And I can serve God for another 50 years. And one day I'm going to die, and you know what God's going to tell the next guy? Will Franco, my servant, is dead. Now go. Because it was never about Will Franco. It was never about Moses. It's never about us. Okay, so Joshua here has a choice to make, right? Who is he going to believe? Which identity is he going to take on? 
is he going to believe what the people say or is he going to believe what God says? Well, what we see in the way that he behaves, Joshua, instead of resting in the people's view of him, he instead, view, he instead rests in God's view of him. Joshua knew that just like he did with Moses, it was God who was going to use him and give him favor. Listen to this. Joshua knew that he didn't have to be a somebody because God was already in the business of using nobodies. He didn't have to be a somebody because God was already in the business of using nobodies. He has shown it again and again and again and again. His identity was not found in being Moses' protege. It was found in being God's child. Joshua's position in Israel described him but his position in God defined him. He was described by one, but defined by the other. So what we see in the life of Joshua is that his faith in God impacted his identity. But here's the thing. Not only do we see it in the life of Joshua, but we also see it in the life of Rahab. The same exact thing is true of Rahab. The first time we hear about Rahab is in Joshua chapter 2. And in that passage, it's been about 40 years since the last time the Israelites had been in the land, right? They, they go into the land initially, and, and the spies go out, and they don't like what they see. They come back. They say, hey, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. Ten out of the 12 say it's a no-go. The Israelites believe the, the report of the ten instead of the report of the two, and God punishes them by making them wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation was dead. That entire adult generation had to be dead before they were able to go into the promised land, Okay? So then in Joshua chapter 2, they're giving another, this, after 40 years, they get, they're getting another crack at it, okay? But instead of 12 spies, they sent two spies this time. When the two spies arrive at Jericho, the house that they go to is the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, the reason why they end up at the house of a prostitute is because it's the only place that two strangers can go and not look like they're standing out. That's why it was her house. It wasn't because was, she was hospitable. It was because it's the only place that two strange men can go into a city and act like they were doing something else. Does that make sense? So they go to her house, and here's what I love about Rahab. Rahab has the type of faith. Her faith is so strong in the Lord that she starts to find her identity in the Lord and not in her past. Okay? So Rahab, like Joshua, has a big decision to make, but her decision is specifically about her past. Which past was she going to allow to define her? Her personal history or God's redemptive history? Think about it. We said Joshua had some baggage. Rahab had infinitely more baggage. She was literally the ultimate outcast. She was a Canaanite. She was a woman. She was a prostitute. Can you imagine what it would have been like growing up and living in that world or in that lifestyle as, as a prostitute in a pagan city like Jericho? And one of the things that, that just sickened me as I was studying this week was just how pagan the city of Jericho was. They, they worship the, the, the moon god. That's actually where their name Jericho comes from. The, the moon god is called Jiraiah, and so they worship the moon god. They're named after the moon god, but they also worship ba Baal, and they also worship Asherah. So there was, there, was, there was temple, there was most likely child sacrifices and, and, and temple prostitution. It, she might have been a temple prostitute for all we know. Because can you imagine, growing up as being a prostitute is already bad enough, but, but to be a prostitute in a wicked city like that? Think about this. Can, what, what do you as a person start to think of yourself when the first thing people think of when they think of you is the role that you play? A prostitute. Even in the Bible, it doesn't hide what she was. It says, Rahab the prostitute. Even in Hebrews 11, it says, Rahab the prostitute. Okay? So what happens to you when for the entirety of your adult life, and maybe even sooner, men see you as property and other women see you as trash? Can you imagine the things people said to her about her worth, her value, her use, and her lifestyle? This was a woman who had gone through a lot. This was a woman who had a lot of baggage and a lot of past and a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of remorse and a lot of regret. But in this passage, she has a choice. 
is her identity going to come from her past or is it going to come from God's past? Is she going to allow her personal history to define her or is she going to allow God's redemptive history to define her? Well, look what it says in Joshua 2, verse 8. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because, you, because of you. For the Lord your God is God. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. But here's, here's what's beautiful about this, guys. You can tell by the way this woman speaks that unlike the other Canaanites, she actually believes the reports about God. And she says, the Lord, your God, is God. He's not a God. He is God, she says. But here's what's beautiful about what she does here. This is why her faith is so significant. She's recounting things that happened in the past, which for us seem like they just happened, but the things that she's talking about happened 40 years ago. She's recounting things that Yahweh did 40 years ago. And she's saying, I know that God is real. I know that your God is God. And that what he did then, he's going to do again. So she chooses to find her identity, not in her broken past, but in God's beautiful past. Not in her work, but in God's work. She doesn't believe in her goodness. She believes in God's kindness. She relied not on her track record of unfaithfulness, but on God's track record of faithfulness. Listen, her faith is so strong that not only is she believing in a God that no one really knew up to that point, right? No one in the land of Canaan knew who they was until 40 years ago. She's believing in a God that no one in that land believes in. And she's believing in things that happened 40 years ago. But she, by her faith, becomes the first Gentile to believe in Yahweh. The first Gentile in human history to believe in God is a prostitute named Rahab. And so what we see is that her identity doesn't come from her position in the city, but it comes from her position in God. Her role as a prostitute might describe her, but it no longer defines her. Her identity is found in God. And listen, the same thing that is true of Joshua and Rahab should also be true of us. Just like them, you and I must get to a point in, with our identity where we don't just believe in God, but we actually believe God. Let me say that again. You and I have to get to a place in our identity where we don't just believe in God, but we actually believe what God says about our identity. I can't tell you how many Christians, when it comes to their identity in Christ, they believe in God, but they don't actually believe God. Okay? For most of us, if we're being honest, our primary identity doesn't come from who God says we are, but it comes from who we say we are. Or it comes from who the world says we are. For most of us, our primary identity comes from our families. It comes from our careers. It comes from our bank accounts. It comes from our boyfriend, our boyfriend, our girlfriend. It comes from our education. For most of us, our primary identity, the thing that most defines us is not God, it's something else. But according to this passage and according to these examples, the only thing that, other things can describe us, but the only thing that should define us is God. Now, here's the thing. None of those things I listed are bad things. They're good things. But the problem is we have taken those good things and we have made them God things. And we've moved them from things that describe us to things that define us. When it comes to our identity, many of us believe in God, but we don't actually believe God. We don't believe we're adopted, so we behave like orphans. We don't believe we're forgiven, so we walk around with shame and guilt. We don't believe we're justified, so we are trying to constantly justify our self-worth and value. Listen, we don't, we, we, here's the problem. We believe in the gospel, 
but we don't really believe the gospel. We believe in the gospel, but we don't actually believe the gospel. We don't believe that we are loved, accepted, redeemed, made new, and born again. And unlike Joshua, we allow the world to not just describe us, but to define us and ascribe value to us. But listen, the only voice that matters, the only voice that has a right to define you is not your voice, is not the flesh's voice, is not the enemy's voice, is not the world's voice, is not your spouse's voice, is not your boss's voice, it's the Lord's voice. That's the only voice that can and should define you. You know, the other day, um, I was working from home, and I was working on this sermon. One of the things that I do when I work from home is I have these headphones on, and they're wireless headphones, so I connect them through Bluetooth from my, my headphones to, to my phone. And one of the things that I play on my headphones is I, I don't play white noise. Uh, I, play, I play brown noise because I'm racist, okay? So, so uh, uh, no, I, I'm kidding. I do play brown noise, though, because it sounds way better. And uh, um, the reason why I have to play brown, brown noise is because my daughters are so loud that if I don't have something playing in my ears, I'm going to get distracted from what God's calling me to do, right? So follow with me here. I'm thinking about an illustration to illustrate this, and, and I get up from my desk, and I walk into the kitchen to get some water. As I get to the kitchen to get some water, I get too far from my phone, and, and the, the static starts coming in. And I'm like, what the heck? Starts cutting. Starts cutting off, because I'm too far from the source. And, and, and as I get far from the source, and the static starts coming in, all of a sudden, I start hearing all the outside noise that, noise that I didn't want to hear. My, 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 my daughter is screaming and my wife complaining. No, I'm kidding. No, sorry, Lily. So, but <laughs> I'm sleeping on the couch tonight. But anyways, <laughs> when I got away from the source, all of a sudden I started hearing the outside noise. Guys, the reason why you have to be in prayer every day, the reason why you have to be in reading the Bible every day, there's no legalistic reason. It's not like if you don't do it, God's going to get mad at you. No, the reason why you have to be in God's word, is not because uh, if not, God will be mad at you, is because it's the only place that reminds you that God already loves you. I, I read the Bible not so that God will be happy with me, but so that I'm reminded that God's already happy with me. And God already loves me. And God has already approved of me. But when I start getting away from the source, the static comes in. And all of a sudden, I'm no longer hearing God's voice. I'm hearing other people's voice. And, and my identity starts coming from other people instead of from God. Does that make sense? That's what we see. It's funny. I was talking to my wife about this. Like just the fact today that I had to use notes, I felt like such a failure. Honestly, even though my week was crazy and even though I felt like I was like, like letting you guys down. Even though I gave this sermon everything I had, I felt like I was letting you guys down. And on the way here, I tell my wife, I'm like, man, I feel like such a bum that I don't have my sermon memorized. And She's like, well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the gospel or do you believe the gospel? That's my wife. That's my wife. So here's some questions for you as we move on to the next point. What is your primary identity actually founded? What are the things in your life that describe you and what are the things in your life that define you? I'm here to tell you that the only thing that should define you is God. Oh, here's a better question. What voices are you listening to this morning? What voices are influencing you and impacting you this morning? If, if it's plural voices, then there's a problem. Because the only voice that should do that, the only voice you should be listening to, the only voice you should stay very close to, is the voice of God. Amen? So, the first area that we see their faith impact is we see their faith impact their identity. The second area that we see their faith impact is we see their faith in God impact their victory. Their victory. 
Now, let's look at Joshua again, right? In, in Numbers 14, Joshua and Caleb are the only ones from the 12, the 12 spies who are confident that God will provide victory. Then later on in Joshua chapter 6, uh, Joshua never once questions the Lord's plan concerning the city of Jericho. Never once, okay? I don't know if you've heard the story. I'm about to read what God says to him, but it's not strategic at all. Like what God says to him makes no sense at all. And yet we see that Joshua believes God. Not, he doesn't just believe in God for the victory. He believes God about the victory. Look what it says in Joshua 6, verse 2. The Lord shows up and talks to Joshua. And he says, then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered. Everyone say delivered. Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Then it says, have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now go back to the first slide in, of this passage, uh, verse 2. Do, do you see how God speaks? God there is speaking in the past tense. Listen, they haven't even picked the weapon up yet. They haven't lifted a finger yet. They haven't taken a step yet. And God says, see, or the, or the other word for it is, behold, I have delivered Jericho. The victory is done. In God's eyes, it's, it's past tense. Even though the Israelites haven't done anything, and even though the Israelites aren't going to do anything, it's in past tense, okay? Now, if I was Joshua, especially with all the, the battle uh, experience that he had, I'd be like, huh? You want me to, what, what? Listen, God, you, you stick to the whole faith thing, and I'll stick to the whole fighting thing, okay? I'm the one that defeated the Amalekites. I got this. No, but God's like, no, no, do this. And what's crazy is that he, instead of believing in his past experience, he, he, he believes that the Lord has already given him victory and he tells the Israelites to do exactly what God says. Think about it. The only person that God is speaking to here is Joshua. The, the Israelites aren't here. At least with Moses, he had Joshua there to confirm when God said something ridiculous, right? Moses would come down and say, hey, hey, do this. Oh, you don't believe me? Ask him. No, no, there's no one there. He's only talking to Joshua. So Joshua has to go back and, and, and reveal this ridiculous battle plan to the Israelites. All right, here's what we're going to do. No weapons. We're just going to walk. Get your Fitbit. We're off. Okay? And yet Joshua has so much faith that he didn't just believe in God when it came to victory. He actually believed God when it came to victory. But, but it isn't just Joshua who believes God's victory. We see Rahab doing it too. In Joshua 2, when the spies arrive at her house, Rahab believes her belief in God's victory with the confident language that she uses. I'm going to reread verse 8 again. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Past tense. Nothing's happened yet. All she sees are these two, these two fools at her house. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you, past tense. Just like the Lord speaks in past tense, Rahab speaks in the past tense. It's done. It's over. He's already won. I know that. But what's beautiful about her is that she is so confident. She's actually more confident in the Lord's victory than many of the Israelites are. And she not only expects God's victory, but she literally lives as if God has already won. If you look at her behavior, she lives, she behaves as if God has already won. And so what we see both in the life of Joshua and the life of Rahab is that when it comes to victory, when it comes to God's victory, we, we, we shouldn't just believe in God's victory. We must believe God about his victory, okay? Now, here's, what I, here's, here's, here's why this is so important. Because when we hear the word victory, we automatically think of prosperity gospel. Oh, that's prosperity language. Well, I, don't, I don't know about all that victory stuff. But listen, victory is not prosperity language. Victory is gospel language. We have been given victory in Jesus. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are in him. So if he won, we won. We are victors. 
according to the Bible. Now, the reason why this is so important for us to not just believe in our victory, but believe that we have a victory is because so many Christians walk around down and defeated and discouraged and despondent. See, for, for many Christians, they're just like the Israelites. See, and, and one of the things that happens with the Israelites, it happens to them twice, actually. In, both in, in, in Exodus 32 and in Numbers 13, we see them revert back to their bondage and to who they were before they were free. And in Exodus 32 is when they start worshiping the gods of the Egyptians again. God's taking too long, so they just make a calf and start worshiping that. Then in Numbers 13, it's the Israelites who look and say, no, no, those people are too big. The, 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 the walls are too high. The weapons are too sharp. We can't do it. But you know why the Israelites do that? The reason why the Israelites are doing that is because they didn't see themselves as soldiers because they still saw themselves as slaves. Let me say it again. They didn't see themselves as soldiers because they still saw themselves as slaves. They didn't see themselves as more than conquerors. They saw themselves as conquered. And the same thing is true with Christians. Many of us believe in God when it comes to victory, but we don't actually believe what God says about victory. Listen, we all have different Jerichos. We all have different strongholds that we're navigating. For some of you, your stronghold might be physical or spiritual or emotional or relational or sexual. But regardless of what your stronghold is, the deliverer is always the same. And the answer is always the same. But if you look at the passage, if, if, if it was past tense in the Old Testament, it's even more past tense in the New Testament. God's already won, guys. But, but the problem is that a lot of us, we are waiting for a freedom that's already been given. We are carrying around chains that have already been broken. We are waiting outside of walls that have already been torn down. Jesus won. He won. And here's what a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians think that the way they're going to get out of their bondage, the way they're going to get out of their stronghold is by focusing on the bondage. It's by focusing, laser focus on the bondage, laser focus on the stronghold. But that's not how you deal with strongholds, guys. That's what happened to the Israelites. They were too focused on Jericho, so they didn't think God can do it. But, but the way you overcome an anxiety problem is not by focusing on the anxiety problem. The way you overcome a, a lust problem is not by focusing on the lust problem. The, the way you overcome a pornography problem is not by focusing on the pornography problem. You know what happens when you focus too much on the problem? then all of a sudden, your victory is not the presence of your Savior, it's the absence of that sin. I don't think you guys are hearing me yet, okay? <laughs> the problem with focusing on the stronghold, the problem with focusing on the problem, then, is that all of a sudden, your victory becomes less than what it actually should be. Your victory is not the presence of a Savior, it's just the absence of that sin. And we say to ourselves, man, if I could just get rid of that pornography, if I could just get rid of that addiction, if I could just get rid of that fear, everything will be better. No, that's not victory, guys. Victory is not the absence of the sin, it's the presence of our Savior. That's what happens when we struggle on the wrong, when we focus on the wrong thing. Our job isn't to focus on the problem, our job is to focus on the problem solver. Here's what a lot of Christians try to do. And because they don't live, and this is why they don't live in victory. Because they try to tear down their strongholds using their own strength and their own weapons. One of the stories that, that gets overlooked in the Bible is when God tells the Israelites, right after Numbers 14, hey, uh, you're not going into the promised land, you're going to wander. One of the stories that's, 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 that's usually forgotten is that the Israelites then try to go by themselves. They're like, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. We'll do it. And immediately after, they go and try to attack the city and they get ransacked and destroyed because God doesn't go with them. But they try to take the stronghold in their own strength. And so many Christians are fighting these spiritual battles with earthly weapons. Look, there's nothing wrong with counseling. To a degree, there's nothing wrong with medication. There's nothing wrong with certain things that we do to fight our strongholds, uh, internet blockers and, and, and certain websites. But at the end of the day, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. And so when we settle for earthly weapons, then don't be surprised when you can't tear down a, a spiritual stronghold. Look, look what it says in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, if you can put that up. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish what? Strongholds. 
So a lot of us, like the Israelites, are trying to fight a battle that God already won. Listen, the gospel says we are more than conquerors. And if we are more than conquerors, then we can no longer live like we're conquered. If, if we are victors, then we can no longer live like we're victims. If we have won, then we can no longer live like we've lost. And if we are free, then we can no longer live like we're slaves. There's a victory in Jesus. You can believe in that victory or you can believe that victory. My prayer is that you would believe that victory this morning. So, so this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. What, are, what is or what are the strongholds that I am currently navigating in my life? The next question is, is what tools or weapons am I using to navigate those strongholds? There's nothing wrong with earthly weapons, but we need much more than that. And, and, and the last question is this. If I am truly victorious in Jesus, to what degree is that victory being displayed in my life? Okay? So, the first area that their faith in God impacts um, is their identity. The second area that their faith in God impacts is their uh, victory. And then the third area that their faith in God impacts is their destiny. Their destiny. Here, what's beautiful about Joshua and Rahab is that their stories don't stop here. Well, a lot of us think that their stories end here in the book of Joshua. But their stories, their paths, their faiths don't just intertwine in the past, but they also intertwine in the future. Their story point us to a greater story. Let's start with Joshua. Joshua points to the true and better Joshua. Listen, the first Joshua fights a temporary battle against a temporary enemy and provides a temporary victory, which allows the people to enter a temporary promised land that would provide a temporary rest. But the greater Joshua fights a greater battle against our greater enemy, which then results, which then he provides a greater victory, which allows us to enter a greater promised land and provides a greater rest. The true and greater Joshua is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, we say this every week, right? Jesus is the better blank. Jesus is the better blank. But with Joshua, like he's literally, literally, I'm gonna show you in a second, he is literally the better and greater Joshua, okay? There's two ways in which Jesus is the greater Joshua. The first way is in his identity, and then the second way is in his victory. The first way in which Jesus is the greater Joshua is in his identity. Literally, they have the same exact name. Joshua in Hebrew means Jehovah saves. Jesus in Greek means Jehovah saves. It's the same name. So he is quite literally the greater Joshua. See, see, but, but what's crazy, though, is that Joshua, he foreshadows Jehovah saves. Jesus shows up and he fulfills Jehovah saves. But he's not just the greater Joshua in identity. He's also the greater Joshua in his victory. Did you know that Jesus Christ is actually in this story? This story is one of the, one of the rare stories where it doesn't just point to him, but he's actually in the story. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is getting ready to attack Jericho. And all of a sudden, this unknown man comes up to him. He has no idea who he is. He has a sword drawn, the Bible says. And so Joshua goes to reach for his sword. He's like, well, are we going to do it or what, bro? Like, who, who are you? Right? And Joshua approaches this man and says, who are you and what side are you on? Here's what the guy says. Here's what it says. He says, I am on neither side. What? He says, I am on neither side. I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I am here. That's all he says. I am on neither side. I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I am here. What scholars say, what Bible teachers say, is that that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. What's beautiful about Jesus is that Jesus always show up the way we, shows up the way we need him. He always shows up the way we I, I'm convinced that the person who's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden is Jesus. Because God the Father doesn't have legs. Anytime you see a, a pre-incarnate person, that's, that's Jesus. So it's Jesus who's in the garden with Adam and Eve. He shows up as, 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 a, as a fellow wanderer walking with them. Then with, later on with Moses, he's in a bush. And then now he, he, he shows up and he, he's a soldier. And then, then when Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's in the fire. 
Jesus always shows up the way you need him to show up. He never shows up the same. He shows up as the, the, the Savior that you need him to be. That's who Jesus is. But, but here's the thing, here's the thing. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus say, when, when he asks, he says, who are you? He says, I am the, the commander of the Lord's army. Why does he say neither? I'm not on your side or your side. You know why he does that? It's the same reason why we talked about the Passover lamb last week. We said that the reason why the, the, the Israelites had to also do the Passover lamb is because they were just as sinful as the Egyptians were. They were just as bad as the Egyptians were. So, so the commander of the Lord's army says, I'm on neither side because you're both broken. You're both sinful. You're both evil. We always think that the Israelites are the good guys and the Canaanites are the bad guys. He shows up and says, no, no, you're both the bad guys. There's only one good guy, and his name is Jesus. The good guy came to die for the bad guys. And so the reason why Jesus doesn't say, he, he, here's what he says. He says, hey, Joshua, I'm not going to pick your side because I'm actually going to take your place. I'm not here to pick a side. I'm here to take your place. What's, what's interesting is that after this, we, we, the commander of the Lord's army disappears. He, he knows that. God the Father is going to provide victory the next day in Jericho. He knows that God's going to do that. Because he doesn't have to fight that battle. He came to fight the battle that he knew we couldn't win. He came to fight the greater battle against the greater enemy. He says, listen, the reason why I'm not picking a side is I have bigger fish to fry. I got a way bigger battle that I got to do. He literally says to him, I will one day fight a greater battle against a greater enemy so that you might have a greater victory. I did not come to take your side. I came to take your place. At the cross, Jesus became a victim so that we might be victors. At the cross, Jesus was conquered so that we might be conquerors. At the cross, Jesus was treated like the Canaanites so that we might be treated like the Israelites. At the cross, Jesus lost the battle so that we might win the war. At the cross, he was cast down so that we might be lifted up. Come on, church. Man, I like these notes, man. Let's go. He, he is, Jesus is the greater Joshua. He is the greater deliverer. He is the greater commander. He is the greater redeemer. And listen, listen, listen. Here, here, here's, here's the kicker. If Jesus is the greater Joshua, then that means we're the greater Rahab. Like Rahab, we are all sinful outcasts who, according to the Old Testament, have prostituted ourselves to other gods. But if that's true, then, then what hope do we have? Well, we actually have the same hope that she had. See, in this passage, uh, Rahab isn't saved because of her behavior. She's saved because of her belief. It's not her behavior. It's her belief that delivers her. And the proof of her belief, the proof that she didn't just believe in God, but that she actually believed God, is the red cord that she hangs from her window. Listen, Rahab was so poor that the city of Jericho had two walls. There was a, an outer wall and an inner wall. All the poor people lived in between the two walls. All the rich people were on the inside of the other wall. She, the, the reason why her window could, faces the outer wall is because she was so poor, all the poor people were in between the two walls. So if there was ever an attack, those people would die first. And, and she proves her faith by hanging a red cord. And here's what scholars say. Scholars say that in many ways, this is her Passover lamb. That's her Passover lamb. If you look, I don't have time to go into it now, but if you look at what the Israelite men say to her, they say to her, if you hang this red rope, then we won't kill you. As long as you stay in the house, then you won't die. It, it literally almost verbatim to what God says to the Israelites on the night of the Passover. If you stay in the house, you'll be saved. The red cord will cover you. It will be proof that you've already been covered. She proves her faith with the cord she pulls up. What's beautiful, though, is that this prostitute, God doesn't just spare her, he claims her. This is one of the things that almost literally broke me down when I, when I found out about this. God says to the Israelites, don't take anything with you. You could take spoils from the other cities, but this city belongs to me. He says, I want you to keep all the gold and all the precious metals for me. 
The only thing that God leaves behind in the city that belong to him are the, the, oil, the, 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 are, the, are the golds and the silvers and the precious metals. But what's fascinating that it's not just that that he claims, because that's not the only thing that survives. He also claims Rahab and her family. So, 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 so she goes from not only being spared by God, but being claimed by God. She's no longer the property of, of Jericho. She's no longer the property of her abusers. She's no longer the property of, of, of her pimp or whoever it was that she was reporting to. She is the property of the living God. He doesn't just spare her, he claims her. He belongs, she belongs to him. She goes from being God's enemy to being God's family because what we find out later on in the genealogy of Jesus is that she becomes a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She goes from being God's enemy to being God's family. And the same thing that she does, we can do today. You and I get to cling to a greater cord, a greater scarlet cord that flows from Jesus at the cross. And when we do that, we will be delivered from a greater judgment and a greater enemy. You know that in this passage, when the horn, when the trumpet blows, Joshua does two things. He brings judgment and he brings salvation. The trumpet blows and the first Joshua brings judgment to the people in Jericho and salvation to Rahab's family. One day, the Bible says there's going to be a greater judgment and a greater salvation. It says in Thessalonians that the, the, the trumpet is going to blow. And the greater Joshua is going to come down. And some will be judged and some will be saved. My prayer, my hope for you this morning is that you would place your faith in the greater Joshua. Because if you do, here's what happens. When you place your faith in him, the walls of judgment fall on him so that the spoils of grace can fall on you. Jesus is the greater Joshua who delivers us from the greater judgment and the greater enemy so that we might have a greater victory. To the degree that you believe that, to that same degree, it will impact your identity, your victory, and your destiny. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning, and, and we are so grateful that this story of, of, of Jericho is, is just a, a precursor. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of, of a greater Joshua and a greater Rahab and a greater Jericho being torn down on our behalf. Lord, I pray today for the people who don't know you. I pray that today would be the day that they place their faith in you so that when that second trumpet blows, they would be those who are saved, not those who are judged. And I pray for the people here who already know you. I pray that today would be the day that they stop just believing in you, but they would actually start believing you. Help us to be a church that doesn't just believe in God, but actually believe God on what he says about our identity, our victory, and our destiny. We love you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people say.